Well, I do want to, again, extend a welcome to you, uh, especially to those of you who might be visiting for the first time. Our uh, regular pastor teacher, Rick Zaman, uh, and his family are, are on a, a couple of months sabbatical to get some rest and refreshment and, and to, to study hard, to return to bringing the word to us week in and week out. It's an intense labor, and we're thankful for the number of years Rick has done that here among us. He's not going anywhere uh, for any length of time anyway, so you might see him around. Do say hello. Uh, do ask how they're doing. Do spiritual good to them. I'm sure they'll appreciate it. But while he's gone, uh, some other elders are going to step into the pulpit and take us through the book of Colossians, and hopefully that will focus our intention on, a, on, on one book instead of going all over the place. And so I pray that uh, you who are, are visiting will return to hear more of God's truth in Colossians, get to know our church family a little bit better, um, and, and hear uh, God's word preached week in and, and week out. And do pray for Rick while, while he's away. So, well, we're starting Colossians 1. Um, as an introduction, I'll say, according to the National Traffic Safety Administration, around 3,000 people die each year from distracted driving. And that's certainly no laughing matter. It's very serious. According to my wife, um, apparently I am a distracted driver at times. Uh, it is not because I'm texting or on my cell phone. I, I can tell you that. It's just that I enjoy looking at scenery in new places. Or sometimes I'm trying to figure out what my kids are arguing about and who's right in the back seat. You know, I want to weigh in. And so with a one-track mind that I have, sometimes we can find ourselves veering off the road a little bit. And so my wife often says to me, you drive, and I'll look. It makes sense. My car is relatively old without a lot of the newer technology today, so this is what I'm used to driving. But occasionally when I go to work, uh, I get to rent a car to drive and see different people uh, over the country. And, and not too long ago, I rented a car, and I was surprised, uh, I was kind of roused out of my normal driving habits when one of the rental cars I was driving seemed to flash warning signs constantly a long and loud beep if you cross the center line, a beep and automatic braking if you got too close to the car in front of you. The steering wheel would actually shake really hard if you got too close to the person in front of you as well. There was a beep if someone got in your blind spot, a smack in the face from a pneumatic arm if you fell asleep. <laughs> now, not, we're not that advanced yet. It got to be so irritating that I honestly was Googling for those, you know, those hacks, they call them, where you, can, you know, honk the horn eight times, do the windshield wipers, open the glove box, uh, and sneeze, and it somehow it turns off. Uh, that didn't work. But in reality, though, I'm thankful that they're making cars with so many warnings in an attempt to keep us safe from distraction that actually could lead to harm or to our demise. I'm thankful for the technology and the signs and even for the human messengers who always give gentle warnings, my wife, uh, those who give us those warnings in person. In reality, I'm thankful for all of these warning signs and warning reminders alerting us to imminent danger. This is certainly true of physical dangers. I mean, who isn't thankful for a tornado siren or a Doppler radar when a hurricane's coming? We're thankful for signs saying not to jump into the tiger cage at the zoo. We're thankful for the warnings that tell us our fast food coffee is hot, even when we ordered it because it's hot. We're thankful for the warning on the iron that says, do not use while wearing your shirt. Or the warning on your hair dryer that says, do not use while sleeping, etc., etc. And so just like we need warnings from physical danger, we often also need, and likely more importantly, given the eternal consequences at stake, 
We need warnings from spiritual dangers, don't we? As we come to the book of Colossians this morning, we find a church in need of spiritual warning or spiritual reminders, for they were in danger due to spiritual distraction. But the danger wasn't from a material or natural source. History does tell us that this area of Asia Minor was susceptible to earthquakes, but that is not why Paul is writing to them to warn them about. He's writing to warn them of something immaterial and therefore perhaps less obvious to some. That is, he's writing to warn them of false teaching that the Colossians were entertaining that was going to lead them away from Christ and the true gospel. This teaching, which seemed to be systematized or packaged or organized in some way, if you look at chapter 2, verse 8 of Colossians, Paul calls it there a philosophy. It wasn't going to replace Christ completely as the object of their faith and worship, but it was going to dethrone him as preeminent in their lives and in their worship and in their earthly pursuits. It was going to set Christ to the side and make him an important object of worship or an important part of the worship, but it wasn't any longer going to make him the most important object of their faith and worship and their obedient living. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 19, that these false teachers, they were not holding fast to the head. That is, they were not holding fast to Christ. We can say that the Colossians were distracted instead of fully deceived because it seems that Paul also had reason to commend them. If you look there in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit among them. And in verse 8, Paul notes that Epaphras had told him of their love in the Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says he is rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. So many here point out that this letter is exhorting rather than condemning. It's prophylactic rather than polemical. It's proactive rather than reactive. It's preventative rather than corrective. We can see this especially when we compare this letter to Paul's letter to the Galatians. In that letter, you only get five verses in before you hear a very strong rebuke from Paul. And there are several other strong rebukes throughout the letter that are there. And you don't quite see that in Colossians. And so just as Paul needed to warn the Colossians in their day, so too in our day, we need to be warned or given important and strong reminders to keep us from becoming spiritually distracted away from Christ, who is the head of the church and the only one worthy of our devotion and our worship and our obedience. And so you ask, Andrew, by what teachings or philosophies might we become distracted? What do we need to know about? Well, in one sense, I would say keep coming back as we delve more into Colossians, as I think we might have opportunity to identify more specifics as we hit chapters 2 and 3. But in another sense, I don't know precisely what that may be for you. And frankly, based on the speed at which philosophies and fads in our society spring up, it may be something that we can't even know about yet, but we need to be on alert. And I've been praying all week that the Holy Spirit might reveal to you and to me those things, those ideas, those practices that we are allowing into our personal lives, or perhaps even to our church, that have the appearance of wisdom and or godliness, but in reality, they're human precepts. They're part of a self-made religion that elevates the shadow over the substance. The shadow being those things that point us to our need for Christ, those things that are part of Christ's creation, and the substance being Christ himself. And so these things would be ultimately useless, worthless, and potentially damning if followed all the way to their end. And so as we come to Colossians chapter 1, our main point for today is this. 
don't become spiritually distracted from the all-sufficient Christ. Instead, refocus your mind and your life wholly on Christ by remembering four things. Remember your true identity in Christ. Remember the true gospel. Remember your true need. And remember your true calling as a Christ follower. All right, I'll leave that up there for a second more. So let's jump into the body of Colossians 1 after that particular introduction. We need to avoid distraction and regain spiritual focus by remembering, number one, our true identity. Remembering our identity in Christ helps us to avoid spiritual distraction because it means we're focused on resting in Christ's assessment of who we are. And it keeps us focused on the mission that he has for us as believers. We don't need to work to get to him He has broken into our lives and come down to us. He's revealed himself to us, and we are safe and secure in him as his children. Therefore, we're not worried about pleasing men or chasing after worldly pursuits or pursuing deeper knowledge, quote-unquote, outside of what God has already revealed to us in his word. We know God, and we know him intimately because of what Christ has done. So we can remember our true identity by doing the following. Number one, we need to remember that God has brought you salvation and given you a mission. Look there at verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul is the author of the letter to the Colossians. We know Paul is in prison when he writes this letter, as he asks in Colossians chapter four to remember his chains, and it's most likely that this is his Roman imprisonment towards the end of his life. Paul is, of course, an apostle, one untimely born, having seen the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus and having been given a direct mission by God of going to the Gentiles to preach the gospel and to make the mystery of Christ known to them. God reached down and broke into his life on the Damascus road, and his life was never the same. All human wisdom, (coughs) all human learning, all tradition, all his personal triumphs and accolades, he called what in Philippians? He called them rubbish dung, filth. He set them all aside for the sake of pursuing the knowledge of Christ, suffering with Christ, and knowing the Christ's power working in him, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Inasmuch as I'm amazed by Paul's intellect and ability to attack faulty arguments and take captive every thought to Christ, I'm equally amazed by the life of suffering and humility that he lived for the sake of Christ. This is indeed the power and the fruit of the gospel. Once Christ got a hold of Paul, he was a man on a mission. He saw gospel preaching as a stewardship entrusted to him. In Colossians 1.25, if you look there, he calls his preaching a stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. He saw his mission from God as preaching the gospel. And he knew he had been entrusted with this as a stewardship. He knew he had this mission whether he wanted to do it or not. So like Paul, God has given us a mission to do his will. And we need to seek to fulfill the ministry he has given to us. It helps us to stay focused and to avoid spiritual distraction when we're seeking after God and his will for our lives and doing what he requires of us. Also in verse 1, we see that Timothy is mentioned here as Paul's ministry companion. And God had a plan for Timothy as well. Timothy here is not to be thought of as a co-author, although some believe he may have served as Paul's amanuensis or secretary in writing the letter. 
We don't know for sure. But the plural we that starts at the beginning of the letter quickly gives way to the singular I in the body of the letter, noting that Paul is indeed the author. The Colossians may certainly have known who Timothy was, and we know that Paul sent Timothy to the Ephesian church 120 miles to the west to minister there. And so it's likely that Paul wanted them to be familiar with Timothy and with Paul's spiritual heir who would carry on the ministry after Paul was no longer here. Before Paul left this earth, he told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist and to fulfill his ministry. And so both Paul and Timothy had a mission from God that they were to be focused on, and so do we. And this helps us, again, to be, avoid becoming spiritually distracted. Second, in remembering our true identity, we need to remember that God has set us apart in Christ. In verse 2a, Paul delivers the letter to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Paul here calls the Colossians saints or holy ones. First, note that they have been set apart by Christ to serve and worship him. They aren't saints, as that term is commonly understood today, in that they're saints because they're amazing holy people or have done two confirmed miracles. They are saints instead because Christ has saved them. They have been made holy by Christ. Second, note that they're faithful. This word doesn't mean that they're trustworthy or show up on time to church activities, but it means they're believers, those who are Christians. They are those who have placed their faith in Christ and are living out that faith in the world. And so Paul says, yes, you are Christians. Third, note here that they are in Christ. This is such a rich phrase in the New Testament and the letters of Paul appearing so many times. In Christ, what are we? What does the Bible say we are in Christ? Well, in Christ, we're new creations. In Christ, we're adopted as sons and daughters. In Christ, we have eternal life. In Christ, we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. In Christ, we have obtained righteousness. In Colossians, it says that we have been filled in Christ, and that in Christ we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh. We were buried with Christ in baptism, and were raised with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God. We have been made alive together with Christ. We have been raised with Christ to new life. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. In Christ, we're new creatures living in a new sphere with new thoughts, with Christ living in us. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As Christians in Christ, we have a new frame of reference. Our minds are renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We think differently. We live differently. We have new life principles given to us by Christ. We have new priorities. This is what it means to be in Christ. There are only two people sitting in this room here today, those in Christ and those in Adam. In Adam, we are under condemnation because of our inheritance of sin nature and in Adam, we all die and suffer judgment from God. In Christ, though, we're no longer sinners condemned by God, but we're sons and daughters headed to glorification by God. And may I also note here that in Colossians here, it says that Christ is the head of the body, the church. And so if we are in Christ as the head of the church, we are also members of one body, members of one another. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, brought into fellowship with each other. 
and responsible for mutual care and love of one another. Don't ever forget that. And may I note also that the church at Colossae is in Christ, but they are physically, geographically at Colossae. Colossae was a city in Asia Minor in the Lycus River Valley at the foot of Mount Cadmus, situated along a major east-west highway that ran from Ephesus to the west all the way to the Euphrates River in the east. This provides some explanation for us as to the mixture of population there that certainly, no doubt, contributed to the mix of ideas, philosophies, and beliefs that were infiltrating the church there. Several centuries before Christ, Colossae was called a populous city, wealthy and large, by Xenophon, and a great city of Phrygia by the Greek historian Herodotus. It was known for its deep red wool, called Colossian wool, which was the source of its industry. However, a historian closer to Paul's day called Colossae a small town, probably having been surpassed by nearby towns of Heropolis and Laodicea. I've read that part of this was because the Romans rerouted the main road that went through Colossae, and so it diminished in significance. So if you're a young person in the room here today and you've seen the movie Cars, this is exactly what happened to Radiator Springs. And there was no Lightning McQueen to revive the town. So in fact... The town now looks like this. Um, I bought this book. Uh, I took a picture of the cover. This is uh, a book about Colossae, and, and it's actually a mound now. It's, it's, a, it's a tell. It's a hill that's really never been excavated. So much of the history remains lost to us. That's a modern city of uh, Honaz, I think, in, in the back there. Something else that we pick up from Colossians is, as it relates to the city of Colossae, is that Paul had never visited this church before in all likelihood. He didn't start this church, and he probably had never even visited there. Look at Colossians 2, verse 1. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Unlike the churches who were the original recipients of some of the other New Testament letters of Paul, this church was founded not by Paul, but by Epaphras. And Epaphras likely had heard the gospel preached by Paul during his nearly three-year Ephesian ministry and took this gospel back to his hometown in Colossae and started a church there. Epaphras is called one of you uh, in Philemon, I think, uh, uh, who also lived in Colossae. In Acts 19, 8 through 10, we learn this about Paul's Ephesian ministry. It says, And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Luke and Acts could say that his ministry in Ephesus was so effective that all the residents of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. Epaphras had really put the disciple-making commands that we've been learning from uh, Pastor Rick in Matthew 28 into practice by taking these truths back to Colossae and starting a church there. Paul couldn't visit every town and plant a church everywhere, but God raised up others to do so. Those of us who are entrusted with the gospel are called to share it with others. And yet, even though Paul had never met these Colossian Christians— in Colossians 1, 24 through 28, Paul considers his sufferings and his preaching to be for their sake, even though he has never met them. He has them in mind as he's suffering and laboring and preaching the gospel. 
And before we leave this section, I just want to stop and reflect on the fact that you should never underestimate your ability to do spiritual good to others, even if you don't know them. This church in my many years here has been absolutely incredible in this area, even recently to me personally with uh, some things going on with my neighbor. People have written letters of encouragement and empathy to people they don't even know. People have prayed for people they don't even know. People have given financial resources to people they don't know. And all this has been done for the sake of Christ and for love of the brethren. The Bible says to do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. And to you, GBC, I would say still excel all the more in this work of grace to even those whom you don't know, just as the Apostle Paul did. And second, I don't want us to leave this section underestimating God's interest in our church just based on size. It's not lost on me, nor on many who have studied this book of Colossians, that one of the richest doctrinal letters in all of the New Testament that so expounds the doctrine of the deity of Christ and his preeminence, that it was reserved for one of the churches with the seemingly least prominent importance in Paul's day. Christ is interested in Grace Bible Church and what we are doing here. He's interested in our orthodoxy, our right belief about him, in our orthopraxy, our living that's based on that belief. We are in Christ, and yet at the same time, we are in Midlothian. So let who we are spiritually impact who we are geographically. Let our connection to Christ and our interactions with our neighbors, our coworkers, our families, and with our brother members here at GBC, let our connection to Christ affect the way that we interact with the people here locally. So last, how to remember our true identity. We need to also remember that God has brought us grace and peace. This greeting is easy to look over, but by no means is it boilerplate. Paul took a common greeting from that day and retooled it with meaning and significance. He removed what normally would have been found at the beginning of a common Greek letter, the word kerain, which means greetings, and instead used charis, which means grace. And Paul knew the grace of God intimately, didn't he? In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul says, I know God's grace in my life, and now I'm asking that God's grace would be given to you. Paul called himself a minister of the gospel of grace, and he called God's word the word of grace. And it's because of the grace of God that allows us to have peace with God. Romans 5, 1 through 2 tells us this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, note in verse 2 that this grace and peace come from God our Father. Because of God's grace, we can now call him Father. He is no longer our judge. God is a God of grace, and the scripture calls him the God of peace in many places as well. Romans 8.15 says, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What an intimate relationship we have with God that the world knows nothing about. The world sees him as a cosmic killjoy and as a frowning taskmaster. But while we get to approach his throne and ask of him and know that he hears us because uh, he is our loving father, we can approach the throne of grace confidently, knowing that we, he hears us because of what Christ has done for us.
by his shed blood on the cross. Second, we need to avoid spiritual distraction by remembering the true gospel. Paul is warning the Colossians not to be distracted from false teaching because he knows they have the truth and they have believed in it. Like they say about training people to spot counterfeit currency, they don't give them a bunch of counterfeits to look at to see all the counterfeits that are out there. They're too numerous to study all of them. Instead, you study the real thing so much, so diligently, that you can easily spot a fake. We need to spend time reflecting on the content, the hope, and the fruit of the true gospel. And this helps us avoid spiritual distraction. So we could remember the true gospel first by remembering the true content of the gospel. In verse 3, it says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So after greeting the Colossians, Paul now launches into an explanation of how he thanks God always when he prays for them. He thanks God because the gospel has come to them in the power of God, and it's now working itself out in their lives. First thing God, uh, Paul thanks God for for them is that he's heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. P.T. O'Brien says that this expression of faith does not denote the object to which their faith is directed, i.e. the fact that their faith was in Christ, but rather indicates the sphere in which that faith lives and acts. The Colossian Christians live now under the lordship of Christ, for they have been incorporated into him. In 1 Thessalonians, where we see the same triad of faith, love, and hope, and it appears all throughout the New Testament as well. Paul calls the Thessalonian faith there a faith that works. It's not a faith of works. It's not a faith by works, but it's a faith that works. We know from James that faith without works is a dead faith. Paul thanks God for their faith that is being lived out among their fellow believers and probably even into the surrounding region. He also thanks God for the love they have for all the saints. The word for love here is agape. It's that strongest form of the term. It's the love of the will. It's a determined, extravagant love of others that is based on the love of Christ for us. And we know what the New Testament says about love and the Christian, don't we? Jesus said it in John. Peter said it in 1 Peter. But perhaps the best known is in 1 John chapter 4, where John says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because why? Because God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this is the truth about Christians who have experienced the love of God. We love others. Paul then connects this faith and love to something else. He connects it to their understanding of the hope they have laid up for them in heaven. Look at the phrase there, because of. Their faith and love are because of the hope they have laid up for them in heaven. This hope is an objective hope. It's a future hope. It's something which is to be hoped for. Hope, as used in this sense in Scripture, includes the following. It includes the hope of salvation. It includes the hope of righteousness. It includes the hope of resurrection to an incorruptible body. It includes the hope of eternal life and the hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. These are all part of the hope laid up for us in heaven. And these are things which we confidently know we'll see and experience when Christ returns for his own. Once again, P.T. O'Brien says, Their hope is clearly oriented toward the future, 
But because it is at this moment being kept safe for them, it has present and immediate ramifications. Yes, it does. Not least of which is the basis of their ongoing faith and exercise of Christian love. So in other words, he's saying the hope that they have as believers is having effects now in their lives and actions. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things, not, of things not seen. Our hope is not the world's hope. It's not a wishful thinking without any certainty of the ultimate result, like I hope it rains tomorrow, or I hope my tomato plants grow, or I hope my favorite team wins the game. Our hope, rather, is one that we are so certain of that it results in present action for today. You are sitting in your chair right now convinced it will hold you, aren't you? You got in your car on the way to church this morning convinced it wasn't going to fail you or randomly combust. You ate your breakfast without asking where it came from or who put it in the package or if the packaging labels were correct. You do so many actions in a day with utmost faith and confidence of a certain result. Knowing this, have you ever taken stock of your life to see how it might be different because of the hope you have laid up for you in heaven? What actions are you taking today that are based on the confidence of the hope you have in Christ? Would people know of this hope by looking at your life? Look at your life. What are your priorities? How far do you go to claim your rights? Where are you placing your trust? What earthly things are you willing to give up to serve Christ now? And for the sake of the eternal reward, the inheritance that you know is being kept in heaven for you. How is your life different because of the hope that you have in Christ? Paul says in verse 5b that they have heard of this hope through the word of truth, the gospel. Notice that the gospel here is not a word of truth or one of many words of truth, but it is called the word of truth. There is only one gospel that saves, and this gospel has specific words. It has specific content. As Rick reminded us several weeks ago, St. Francis of Assisi was wrong. It was St. Francis who said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. We must use words because the gospel is objective propositional truth that must be known, it must be taught, and it must be believed upon. It's something that the Colossians had heard from Epaphras, something they had to learn from Epaphras, something they believed on objectively. Paul speaks of this gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the content of the gospel at its most basic. In Romans 10, 17, Paul says, Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That is the word about Christ. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And there's multiple other references that could be looked at to talk about the gospel being a message of truth with, with content that's important to communicate. Now, why is it important for us to go back and refresh ourselves time and again to the timeless, changeless, true-saving gospel? Well, one thing I certainly do know for sure is that we are very susceptible as humans to substitute the new for the old. And to even substitute the new for the true, even when the old is perfectly fine or what is in fact true. If you just start with your kids, right? We know that they easily discard their old toys, their old Christmas presents for last year, and they're anticipating 
the new thing. They're already looking forward to the new thing. In my house, we get sad when our kids discard the old and good TV shows that are teaching them so much about life and manners and their feelings and all of this sort of stuff. But now they're moving on to, to new shows, to, to learn new things. When we're teenagers, we accept truth from new sources like teachers or friends or professors, i.e. anyone but our parents. We accept these as valid and forsake the godly teachings of our God-given shepherds, our parents. This happens in college as well as young people. <clears throat> Excuse me. This happens in college where as well young people will forsake the truth of God's word for hollow and deceptive man-made philosophies, oftentimes only because what they are hearing is new or is because it's coming from a new authority. And sadly for adults, it's no different. We're often swayed by new teachings or new teachers or books that have in their subtitle, let so-and-so help you unlock the deeper meaning of spiritual truth or something along those lines. We're often enticed by a purported deeper or higher understanding of something or something that feels like a more enlightened explanation of something we already know. Sarah and I were listening to a podcast recently where one of the hosts was talking about having just written a book called Deep Discipleship. Um, and in jest, the co-host said that, well, I'm writing a book called Deeper Discipleship. And on and on and on it goes. We're always looking for something new. Sometimes whole societies can be swayed by what's new instead of by what's true. If you look in Acts chapter 17, you look at the Athenians, it says this about them. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is what they did for entertainment. They didn't have television, computers, YouTube. But they were still distracted. They were distracted with new teachings. So imagine Paul coming to them, speaking the gospel truth, but many of them mocked him. And so they discarded the truth altogether. And finally, and sadly, even churches can be distracted. Many churches have incorporated worldly teachings into the pulpit and so have diminished the necessity or supremacy of Christ altogether. There are some churches you would visit today and not be able to tell the difference between a Christian, the preaching of the Christian gospel and a self-help seminar or psychology lecture. It may be hard to discern in church a Christian sermon versus a political rally or a Christian gathering versus a New Age gathering. And on the flip side, certainly you might still hear churches preaching legalism. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul said to Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So we need to be on our guard against false teaching. I've heard it said somewhere before, I think it's attributable to D.A. Carson, who says the gospel is believed in the first generation, assumed in the second generation, then lost in the third generation. Along the way, it can become confused or muddled where anything that's been added to it becomes assimilated into the message itself and is what is ultimately believed by that third generation. And we need to know the true gospel to be able to defend it and preserve it from generation to generation. We need to live and breathe and study and constantly preach and be reminded. We need to tell ourselves and tell others that the true saving gospel, we need to tell ourselves what that true saving gospel is from the pages of Scripture so that we keep from becoming spiritually distracted by things that would distort or muddy it. Second, in remembering the true gospel in addition to the true content, we need to remember the true power of the gospel. Verse 6. 
which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. This true gospel, it not only has the power to save people, but it has the power to change people. Paul points out that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. And this is juxtaposed over and against the localized heresy beguiling these Colossians. Paul not only points to the worldwide influential scope of the gospel in changing human hearts and lives, but he also says, you Colossians, you were changed by this gospel. You weren't changed by false teaching. You weren't changed by legalism. You weren't changed by mysticism, by asceticism. You were changed by the power of the true gospel, with Christ getting all the glory, with Christ being the one who died and rose again to release us from our sin and to give us new life. In the parable of the soils from Jesus, we know that the gospel seed sown in fertile soil, it produces a return of up to a hundredfold in the life of the person in whom that gospel seed is implanted. What other religion do you know of that has borne fruit like Christianity? So many charities, so many hospitals, service organizations have been started by Christians. So many human rights have been secured by the efforts of Christians. So many scientists were pioneers in their fields because they knew that when they went and studied God's universe, they would find order there. The validity of much teaching is known by its fruits, isn't it? What is atheism born? Death and destruction. What do false religions often bear as fruit? The fruit of burden and fear. And the unknown. Romans 6 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The fruit in the life of a Christian is the fruit of the Spirit, of course. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's the fruit of righteousness. It's the fruit of praise given to God, Hebrews says. Jesus says that we were saved to bear fruit for him, and we can only bear fruit, John 15, by abiding in him. Jesus said a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You'll know false teaching by its fruits. Look at your life to see if it is bearing fruit. And if it is, it's likely because you are indeed holding fast to the true gospel. Next, and relatively quickly, to remember our, the true gospel, to avoid becoming spiritually distracted, we need to remember the true ministers of the gospel. We can avoid spiritual distraction by finding good teachers of the, teachers of the gospel and listening to them and learning from them. Here again, we see that the gospel was something that had to be learned. Uh, look at verse 7 of Colossians. Just as you learned it, that is, the grace of God and truth, that's the it there, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. See, Epaphras was Paul's fellow prisoner, and his ministry had cost him something. Epaphras had traveled to Rome to see Paul for some reason. Some suggest it was to get Paul's advice on the Colossian heresy, but that's not certain. The churches of Colossae, Laodicea, and Heropolis may have commissioned him to go and see Paul for a particular reason. It may be that he didn't go there to see Paul, though, too. But he met Paul in prison. Whatever he went there for, it seems as if he ended up in prison with Paul. Both Epaphras and Paul had invested so much in those that they taught the gospel to. We need to find teachers of whom can say to us, as Paul said to the Corinthians, Be imitators of me, therefore, as I am of Christ. If you go to 1 Thessalonians 2 sometime, note there 
the love that Paul has for the Thessalonian believers, the words that he uses there, he says he didn't come with words of flattery. He didn't come as a pretext for greed. He asked for nothing from them. He was like a nursing mother to them, taking care of their own children. He was like a father to them, exhorting them daily and toiling and laboring among them. And there, so we see, there we see uh, our teacher's humility. They gave of themselves to their hearers. They were not greedy for gain. They placed no burdens on them. And they were willing to endure suffering for the message they learned and taught. And so for the hearers to bear up under suffering for the message they learned, this affirmed that it truly was at work in them. This was God's word truly at work in them. And so we need to surround ourselves with teachers who will teach us the true gospel and who will disciple us and who will help uh, point us to Christ as all-sufficient and who will know us intimately enough, whereas like Epaphras did to Paul, they can point to us and say, they're loving people in the Spirit. The goal of faithful, solid instruction is that we would become fully mature in Christ and so that we would not be tossed to and fro by human coming and by false teaching. So let's make sure we're grounded in the faithful, gospel-oriented, biblical teaching and are surrounded with leaders who are investing in us spiritually. Third, to avoid spiritual distraction and regain spiritual focus, we need to remember our true need. Verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In verses 9 to 14, Paul's going to turn now from thanking God in prayer to praising and praising him in prayer to now asking for something, to petitioning God in prayer. Here he is asking God to do something. He is asking that God would fill them. The verb here is passive, that you may be filled. They can't fill themselves. God is going to have to be the one to do it. The word fill here means to be totally filled. And the way it is used elsewhere in Scripture, it has the idea of so filling up something that it takes control. So as to be filled with fear, to be filled with sadness. It's a controlling type of filling. So what is Paul asking to be filled with? He's asking to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. At this point, some commentators start going down the road of talking about how to find God's will for our lives as we normally think of it. You know, what does God want us to be doing? What is his special direction for our lives? And they point out those passages in Scripture where it's very clear, where it says, God's will for you is this. Paul says it's God's will for you to be saved. It's God's will for you to be sanctified. It's God's will for you to suffer. And there's a couple others in the New Testament. But other Bible students pick up on the fact, and I agree with them, that this petition here is rather asking God to help the Colossians have a thorough, deep understandings of the truths that Paul is going to lay out in the rest of Colossians. Truths that explain who Christ is and his sufficiency for their lives and his deity and the fact that they need to be filled with him and the fact that they're to live new life in him. Once again, P.T. O'Brien's helpful here. He says, Paul's use of knowledge here might be a, by way of contrast with the much-canvassed gnosis or knowledge of the false teachers. Heretical gnosis or knowledge was speculative and theoretical, while the knowledge for which the apostle prayed concerned the will of God. So there's this false teaching, and Paul's saying, oh, we want you to be filled with the knowledge of God instead of with this knowledge that the false teachers are purporting. He notes, O'Brien does, that the prayer for knowledge here precedes exposition of Christ's lordship in creation and redemption, its ramifications for the Colossians, and the detailed interaction with the philosophy of the false teachers that are to come later on in Colossians. 
Paul, I believe, is asking God to give them understanding of the type of life they're to be living in Christ because it is on a different level of thinking than the thinking they are currently committing themselves to. Paul prays for knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. These words show up together often in the Old Testament, and we know that the fear of the Lord in Proverbs is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. Wisdom encompasses a full body of knowledge, and understanding is the skillful application of those principles to different situations in life. In the Septuagint, the same word understanding is used of the men of Isaacar in 1 Chronicles, whom the Bible says had understanding of the times to know what to do. And we don't need human wisdom, do we? We need spiritual wisdom. And this is what Paul prays for. In Corinthians, Paul says spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. And we need the Holy Spirit in us to help us understand God's truth. The Bible calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And it also says we have the mind of Christ. Philippians says to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's a mind focused on the things of God. So Paul prays for their spiritual wisdom and understanding, and to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, to be filled with the knowledge of who Christ wants you to be and how Christ wants you to follow him and the life we're called to live in Christ now as Christians. So fourth and finally, we need to avoid spiritual distraction by remembering our true calling. Verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We avoid spiritual distraction when we live the life God has called us to live, being strengthened by him to do it and remembering the new life he has called us to. This knowledge should keep us on the path of Christ, focused and Christ-exalting and living uh, in a way that's pleasing to him and keeping us from spiritual distraction. Specifically, Paul says, remember your true calling by walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Uh, To walk is a Jewish expression uh, that Paul's picking up on from his roots, no doubt, and it just means to live. Live in a manner worthy of the Lord in everything you do. Live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And he gives us four phrases, four participles showing us how we're to do this. One, we're to bear fruit in every good work. And we've already talked about this, so we won't talk about it again. But we're to abide in Christ, and by abiding in Christ, we can bear fruit. The Christian must bear fruit. The, the, The gospel that shows the world that sinners can be saved from sin and know Christ, it also has the power to change us, to make us new creations. And we need to show that forth in our Christian life. We are also pleasing to him when we're increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul prays that they would increase in the knowledge of God. Where does God reveal himself? You ask, in Scripture. So what should we be doing to get to know him better? Studying Scripture. How many of you know your spouse? Like, really know them well? I hope all of you do, in some sense. Well, how did you get to that point? How did you know what will fully please your spouse? You studied him or her, didn't you? You spent time with them. You asked them questions. You strived with them and lived with them day in and day out. Well, to please God in our life and our actions and our behavior, we have to be able to act in accordance with our knowledge of his character and his will. Otherwise, we'll not know what to do or we'll just guess at what pleases him and we'll totally miss the mark. 
Paul said of the Jews that they had zeal, but without knowledge. They would do a lot of fervent religious things, but it was without knowledge. They were not pleasing God in what they were doing. We are to have zeal and knowledge, or action, along with understanding. We must know what God requires of us and who he is through his word. We also walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord by being strengthened with all power for patience and endurance. Once again here, this is a passive verb. We must be strengthened. We cannot strengthen ourselves. How do we know God will give us the strength we need? Well, Paul in Ephesians 1 says he's praying for the Ephesians that they'll know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And here in Colossians, Paul says this, that he is working, at the end of Colossians 1, he says he is working hard to present everyone mature in Christ, and that for this he toils with all his energy that Christ powerfully works within me. He's working out the strength that God has worked into him. And if his actions are in alignment with God's will for him, he knows that God will supply the strength needed for all of his aims, of all of his missions. Knowing that we are filled with God's strength and praying for God's strength to be made manifest in us, we can work out his strength in our lives as well. And what strength does God pray for? Does Paul pray for? Well, he prays for all endurance and patience with joy, that the Colossians would have all endurance and patience with joy. Many Bible teachers note that endurance has linkage to trials and difficulties we face, while patience has linkage to being long-suffering towards people. One Bible teacher said this, he said, Endurance is what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation, while patience is what they show to an apparently impossible person. And I thought that was good. God gives us the strength for both of these things as we live here on this earth in, in, in a new sphere. As we live in Christ, he, he gives us the strength to endure trials with joy and to endure difficult situations and to endure difficult people showing them the love of Christ and forgiveness, the same love and forgiveness that Christ showed to us. And finally, Paul says, to remember your true calling of walking in a manner worthy by remembering to give thanks. And what do we give thanks for? Specifically, well, we're giving thanks for these things. Verse 12b, we're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. To be qualified means to make us fit when we are not fit, or to make us worthy of a title that we are certainly not worthy of. And we were totally unqualified to share in the inheritance of God on our own. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath. All we had expectation of was God's judgment, not a reward. The Bible says we were foolish, darkened in our understanding, and futile in our thinking. We were without hope and without God in the world. We were of our father, the devil, happy to do his work. And the fact that we make a practice of sinning meant that we would not inherit the kingdom of God. For the Bible is clear that no one who makes a practice of sinning, whose lives are defined by sin, will inherit the kingdom. However, Galatians 4, 4 through 6 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. By the will of God and the redemption of Christ, he's adopted us into his family and given us the right to become his children so as to receive 
our portion of the inheritance he has waiting for us. Though we await our inheritance in the future, we have the guarantee of it now as the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment, a pledge of what is to come. God will be with us all through this life and on into the next, bringing us to the place he has prepared for us in the new heavens and the new earth. This inheritance is in the kingdom of light, where God, who dwells in inapproachable light, and in whose kingdom there will be no sun, because he will be its light, this kingdom is where God rules and reigns and where no sin or decay will ever be present. This inheritance is kept for us in the kingdom of light. We're also to thank God that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 13. The word deliverance has the idea of rescue and is translated that way in some of your Bibles. He has rescued us from what? He has rescued us from the God of this age who is the prince of the power of the air, from Satan, and from the works of darkness that Satan's children work in his name. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In John 3 it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In Ephesians 5, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. We have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of his love. What a glorious truth. <clears throat> and finally, he's given us redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means we were bought out of slavery for a price. Corinthians says you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And what was the price that was paid for our redemption? Nothing short of the precious blood of Jesus. And what do we need redemption from? Well, we were slaves to sin. Jesus said in John 8, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And in Romans 6, Paul says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Not only do we have a redemption from sin and its power over us, but we also have forgiveness. And Isaiah 59 says this is incredibly important. Because it says, our iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And what's the remedy for this? Well, God had to provide it through Christ. Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. In the hymn, Rock of Ages, the song asks Christ to be for sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and its power. And that is what is in mind here with redemption and forgiveness. And we're to be always thankful for that, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, always to be giving thanks. So I'm coming to a close now to say this and to ask you this. Are you spiritually distracted? Or maybe are you totally spiritually aloof, not knowing the truth from error and not knowing your need for Christ alone to be your Savior and your guide into all truth and all wisdom? 
Have you turned your attention and your affection and your worship away from Christ and the true gospel? Are you simply a person of faith, whatever that means? Or are you a person of faith in Christ alone, the all-sufficient Savior? Do you see the difference there? Does your faith have an object, Christ? Does it have the content needed to save, to truly save, the true gospel? Is the faith you have working itself out in your life, that is, in bearing fruit that's pleasing to God? If you feel deficient in fruit-bearing in your life, it may be because the life, love of Christ has not truly constrained your heart. You may not know him. And so if you are here today and don't know Christ, I pray you would see him as your greatest need as a sinner and your highest delight as one who can be in relationship with him because of the work of Christ on the cross. And he alone can guide you into all truth and wisdom. He can rescue you from the domain of darkness that you're currently under and transfer you into the kingdom of son and give you a lot, a portion in the inheritance of the saints in light. If you do know Christ, I pray that you would search your heart and your life. Is there any philosophy, any teaching, any vain ambition that has dethroned Christ in your life? Does he still have the place of preeminence in your life? If not, ask him to refocus your life spiritually and to give you all knowledge of his will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And lastly, church, know that your leaders here, your elders, pray for you in the same way that Paul prayed here and give thanks for you in the same way that God that Paul give thanks to God here on Tuesdays when we meet and we pray for you by name. This is our heart, the heart of Paul here as we pray and give thanks for you. And so I pray you've today seen that all wisdom is held in Christ alone and he alone is sufficient to save and we need to keep our focus on him. Let us pray together and ask him for his help.